Welcome to Living Water Anglican Church in Albany, Western Australia. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Why the church at all? What is the purpose of the church? Is it just a community group like so many others? Is it just a club? Is that all it is? And if it is, then perhaps it should be shut down. Is that all it is? And the answer is no, it isn't at all. It is so much more. And that is really what I want us to focus on and have a look at today as we explore this really important question, what is the church? Why the church? And we'll be looking at some of the images that describe the church that we find in the Bible, in the New Testament. And there are literally dozens of them, but we're just going to touch on five this morning. And of course, I'm not going to be laying out for you a theology of the church. There are many trees have died and books have been written about that. I just want to touch on these five kind of key descriptors about how the Bible talks about the church. And these are them. Firstly, friends. Secondly, family. Thirdly, home. Fourth, Jesus. And fifth, love. And these are the reasons that I love the church and so many of us do as well. But can I say it wasn't always this way. Um, There was a time before I was a Christian when the only ideas of church that I had uh, that were kind of associated with with it was that it was boring and that it was a building or or different kinds of buildings, those two things. Now things have changed for me and I'm going to share with you why I don't hold that view anymore. But um, certainly being boring was a very key factor. Apparently Abraham Lincoln once said, if all the people who fell asleep in church on Sunday mornings were laid out end to end, they would be a great deal more comfortable. (laughs) So not only boring was my initial thought, but I thought that churches were initially just buildings, really. Of course, there are many beautiful church buildings, but some of you will know that for the first 300 years of the church's life, there probably wasn't a single church building. That isn't actually what church is about. That's not what the essence of church is. It's not the buildings. It's a bit like a marriage. You say, well, what's marriage about? You could say, well, it's a ring. It's a marriage certificate. Sure, but those really are the externals. That's not the essence of what marriage is about. At the heart of it is something much more profound, much more mysterious even, much more beautiful. Deep connection, profound love. And at the heart of church is something truly also profound, amazing and beautiful, and really quite glorious, actually. And so we'll look at each of these five descriptors just briefly as we explore that. Firstly, friends. Church means friends. Jesus said in John chapter 15, I call you my friends. That's what he says to you and to me. I call you my friends. Isn't that amazing to be a friend of Jesus? And we're called not just to friendship with Jesus, but friendship with one another. And that is what's so amazing. When we share in communion together, which we'll do next week in the service, one of the things we do in the service is to emphasize that aspect of relationship with God, which is friendship with Jesus And with each other. And we do that through what's called the greeting of peace. And so, in the service, at a certain point, I'll ask you to stand and we say together, We are the body of Christ. And you respond, His Spirit is with us. And and then for a moment, we greet one another. We give each other a sign of peace, a sign of community, a sign of friendship. It is symbolic at one level, 
But it is teaching us something, isn't it? It's teaching us about that key principle that knowing Jesus and being at the church is about friendship firstly. And when it comes to being friends with Jesus and one another, it really doesn't matter how big the size of the community is. What matters is that very special something, that very special connection that exists amongst Jesus' people. The, the word in the New Testament for it is the word koinonia, which we often translate as fellowship. But it has a, a, a deep meaning. In English, we really struggle because it also speaks of a kind of a, a common life, a shared life, even a participation in one another's lives. And so even communion is talked about in the phrasing and in the language of koinonia. When we eat and drink the, the bread and wine, there's a sense of us participating, joining in fellowship with what Jesus has done for us and by us joining with him. So that word koinonia is a key word in describing this friendship that we have with Jesus and with one another. And this level of connection, folks, it is deep. I can remember when I first became a Christian, uh, you know, and maybe it was just me growing up and I was just a bit awkward, I don't know. You'll probably say yes. But, um, you know, people were not naturally friends, in my experience. There needed to be some kind of stuff in order to create a friendship, right? You'd need to kind of try and figure out what is this person like, what don't they like, and then try and see if you two had more stuff in common, and then a friendship could kind of emerge. And it would take time, and then you'd, you know, there would be issues and all the rest of it, like every friendship does. But it was really, at one level, quite superficial to begin with. And for a lot of my young years, and even through teenage years, struggle to really understand the depth of what friendship means. I mean, I had a few really good friends, which was wonderful. But generally speaking, people were not really friends, unless you really worked hard at it to make friends, really. And yet, when I became a Christian, it was like suddenly that reality of friendship, that depth of relationship that I had had with a few people over the years, like was on steroids. Because suddenly, everyone who followed Jesus like I did we had a new depth of common life together, which I'd never known before. And that's what Jesus is talking about. That sense of common life, that deep sense of friendship that comes as a result of following Jesus. And it's a friendship that we really need. We really need one another. Someone once said this, there are two things you can't do alone. You can't get married alone, and you can't be a Christian alone. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 10, verse 25 of the New Testament, it says this, Let's not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. In other words, he says, some people do give up, but don't do that. Don't give up meeting together. Gather, because in so doing, you'll be encouraging one another. Isn't that what friends do? It's so natural, isn't it? And there's a reason we need this encouragement. Because our faith really will struggle without it. It'll even dwindle. The story is told about a man. He'd had a faith at one time, but he felt that it was ebbing away, that it was, it was, uh, he was losing it. And so he, he went to go and see this older man, a wise Christian man, and he was, lived in a cottage out in the country, and there was a fire in the fireplace when he went out there. And as they were sitting there, he asked the older man for his advice. And as he was speaking to him, the older man kept quiet, didn't say anything. He just walked over to the fire pit, and with a pair of tongs, he took out a red-hot coal. That's how we're meant to be with our faith, of course, red-hot. He took out that coal, and he put it on the ground nearby. And very soon, that glow had gone, and had gone almost dead. And then without saying anything again, he just went up with the tongs, and he picked up 
that almost dead coal and he put it back in the fire. And within a few minutes, it was glowing red hot again. And without saying a single word, the young man began to understand perfectly well why he had begun to lose his enthusiasm, why his faith had been ebbing away, why it had been, in a sense, drifting. Because he'd forgotten how much we need one another, how much we need each other's encouragement. Because that's what friends do. I don't know if you've experienced it, of course, but just being together, just coming together as friends is so encouraging. So that's the first descriptor of church. We are friends, friends of Jesus and friends of one another. The second point is that we are more than friends. We are actually family. We are family. We are the family of God. The church is not an organization that you join. It's a family where you belong. John writes this in his letter, 1 John chapter 5. He says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. In other words, you're a child of God. God is your father. And everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. What John is saying is that you can't say you love God, but that you don't love his children. You can't say that you love God, but then say in the next breath that you hate or you, you don't like the church. God is our Father. And that makes us what? Brothers and sisters. Have a look around you. Here are your brothers and sisters. And if you're not a Christian yet, they are your potential brothers and sisters. I'm not sure whether that helps you in the journey of faith or not, but I'm just putting it out there. I remember having a, a really wonderful conversation with our kids when they were really young about this reality, about being children of God. And we were sitting down, it was bedtime, and as we regularly did, and read the Bible together. And um, I said, they were, in fact, all three of them were in the room. I think Enya was about three, so she didn't really know what was going on, but that's okay. Uh, and we were talking about this reality, and I said to them, you know, at the moment, mom and I are your parents. So right now, my role is to be your father, to be your dad, all right? And I've got a whole bunch of responsibilities associated with that. And my job is to, you know, I've got a whole bunch of things. I've got to make sure you looked after and you're clean and you've got food to eat and I'm telling you about God and, you know, lo- loving you and all the rest of it. And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, but there's going to come a time when you and I are going to be brothers. A little boy's brain just exploded in that moment. And it's, it is a big deal, folks. It's a beautiful truth. Our children will become our brothers and sisters in Christ as we join and are part of the family of God. Why brothers and sisters? Because it is God's intention to bring the whole human race together as a family united around Jesus. The family is God's idea. It is his vision for humanity to be joined to one another under our Lord Jesus. And becoming a member is not by birth, it's not by ethnicity or anything else, but by new birth, by rebirth. Jesus talked about being born of water and the Spirit. Becoming a Christian is about being born again. Jesus was, he demonstrated that with baptism and he commanded his disciples to baptize. And so becoming a Christian involves three things. First of all, something that God does. God gives you his Holy Spirit. Secondly, something that you do. You repent and believe. And we talked about that last week. And thirdly, something that the church does. And that is to baptize. Baptism is the mark 
of being a member of the church, the family of God. And it symbolizes washing, being cleansed. The water is cleansing, like we were cleansed through the blood of Jesus on the cross, through his death for us. It also symbolizes the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He's talking about a new life that will be emerging from within you. By this he meant the spirit, the scripture says. In other words, as Jesus gives you his spirit, a new life emerges within you. You start to see the world in a different way. Different values, different priorities, different desires. Everything changes. Streams of living water. And baptism also symbolizes dying and rising with Christ. Being joined to him spiritually in these deep family bonds. And so Paul uses that image to talk about what it means to be a Christian. I want to use this picture of this Bible and this piece of paper over here. He says, when you're baptized, if this piece of paper represents you and this Bible represents Jesus, what happens is that when you're baptized, this piece of paper is joined to Jesus. So that whatever happens to Jesus now happens to you. And so in Romans chapter 6, Paul says it this way. He says, all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And so when Jesus died on the cross, we died. We were buried with him when Jesus was buried. The old life is gone. And through baptism into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, when Jesus was raised from the dead, so we were raised to a new life. And so baptism is this powerful picture of being joined to Jesus, being the family of God. And so that's the second point to see. Friends and family. Third one is home. The third picture we find in the New Testament describing the church is that it is home. In the Old Testament, the physical temple was God's home. That's the place of his presence. That's why people loved it so much. David wrote many psalms longing to be in the presence of God in the temple, be home. In the New Testament, it's not a physical building. It's a building made up of people. Peter talks about the fact that every Christian is like a brick that's being joined to every other brick to become a house in which God lives by his spirit. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about us being a holy temple. He says, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Jesus said, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. In other words, when the church comes together like this, God is here. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's why it's so amazing. Sometimes people talk about church having a, you know, an atmosphere or something like that. What are, they, what are they sensing when the church gathers? Folks, Jesus is present when we gather in his name. It is a beautiful reality. The Holy Spirit is present. God the Father is present. And that is amazing because the church is God's home. And home is so important to us, isn't it? To know where we belong, to know that we are loved, that we can be ourselves and be accepted. Something amazing about coming home to be refreshed, revived, reinvigorated, re-energized, and we're learning it and being reminded of over and over again with our kids who have now left home and keep coming home. 
which is wonderful, to be re-energized and invigorated, normally from our pantry uh, and from the laundry and whatever else there is. It is wonderful because they know they're accepted. They know they're loved. And that's a bit like what the early church did. They came together for those things. It was like coming home. We read about this in the book of Acts in the New Testament, which describes the early years of the church. It says when they came together, they did this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is equivalent for us would be like having the Bible read and preached to the fellowship, and that is to the friendship, the koinonia with one another. That is so important for encouragement. But like what we're doing here this morning and we have morning tea together. It says we, they continued in the breaking of the bread, which is sharing communion, and we're going to do that together next week. And to the prayers, praying for one another is included in that sense of church and fellowship. So church is designed to be a place where people come and they're not judged, but they're loved. They're welcomed home because they belong. Church is about friendship, family, home. And then fourthly, the church obviously is about Jesus. Paul says this, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. He says that Jesus is the head, and we are the body, and together we make up Jesus, in a sense, to the world. How will the world see Jesus? Through us. That's the metaphor, that's the picture. Jesus is the head, and we are the body. Folks, first thing to note is that there are lots of us. Around the world, praise God, Jesus is present and visible to the world in almost every corner of the world. Jesus never wrote a book. He formed a community. He started with a small group, and that small group has grown rapidly. For 2,000 years, it's been growing. And the church all over the world consists of all of these people down through the ages who profess the name of Christ, and it is vast. There are now 2,300 million Christians in the world. Since 1970, the Christian church has grown by over a billion new Christians. Tens of thousands of people are becoming Christian every day, not by simply birth, are converting to Christ. Today, tens of thousands of people around the world will become Christian. Pentecost, folks, hasn't finished. It hasn't ended. It never did. What began in Acts chapter 2 is continuing all over the world all the time. Of course, there has been decline in what we might call Western countries. And therefore, it's easy to think, oh, you know, the church is in decline. But that's not representative of what's happening globally. In Africa, in 1900, there were 10 million Christians. By 2025, estimated to be 760 million Christians. Even accounting for the overall population growth, which is sixfold in that time, the rate of growth of Christianity in that time is 10 times that. The growth of faith in Christ is unbelievable almost. Even still in the United States, 74% of people profess faith in God. That's 245 million people. In China, in 1940, there were 4 million Christians. Today, China experts reckon there could be well over 120 million. And China may soon become, listen to this, the largest Christian country in the world. Would you have ever dreamed that possible? And of course, that includes many parts where the church is horribly persecuted. Many people have died for their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, more people have died in the last hundred years than in all the other centuries combined. But by all accounts, even in those places, the church is strong and vibrant. And it's a huge privilege for us even to be able to worship here free from persecution. We can never take it for granted. 
The church is the body of Jesus in the world, and it is vast, right? And it's also meant to be in unity. Tragically, the church has divided so much over the years. But the exciting thing is that in more recent times, these divisions are reducing. And the Holy Spirit is doing this more and more everywhere you go. He's bringing Christians together of all different stripes. And people are recognizing more and more that we need one another and that the church is multifaceted and needs to be united. And unity is so important. In fact, even in our own little town, we have seen an incredible move of God for unity in the last number of years. It's been quite surprising and quite wonderful. The truth is this. None of us have the whole truth. No one has the whole truth. It's only together that we get a better view of the one who is the truth. You see, the truth is a person. Jesus is the truth. As Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus prayed this prayer, that we may be one, that we may be united in order that the world will believe. You see, a divided world demands a united church. We're supposed to set an example of unity, and unity is so powerful. It is beautiful, because what unites us as Christians is infinitely greater than what divides us. Unity doesn't mean uniformity, of course. There are lots of different parts, and variety is important and great. We can learn from one another. You know, it's so interesting that in our human nature, wherever there is difference, our little, small little brains automatically want to assume that there's something wrong, isn't it? Wherever there is difference, the first place our little brains want to go to is, well, I'm better, so what's wrong with that? And in fact, the scripture says, no, Paul writing, he says, consider others better than yourselves. He's saying, take that impulse to want to look at difference and judge it and be negative about it. Take that impulse and turn it on its head. Consider others better than yourselves. When we see another part of the church, let's consider them better. They're doing things differently. They must be better. Maybe we can learn something, right? Let's change and continue to have that kind of attitude. So this is the united church where everyone has a part to play, where everyone is praying, everyone is giving, everyone is serving. The church is the biggest volunteer organization in the world, feeding the hungry, visiting the people in hospital, serving people in prisons, caring for ex-offenders, fighting injustice, fighting human trafficking, doing all of these things. In Australia, church attendees are twice as likely as the general population to be involved in serving their communities in some way. You see, the church is the body of Jesus to the world. It's a very important principle to understand. So the church is friends, one, uh, family, home, and of course Jesus. And then finally, the fifth word to pick up is the most, uh, the most important. And that is that it's the word love. Church is effectively a love relationship. And for me, I love the church because Jesus loves the church. And Jesus loves you and me. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then he goes on to talk about marriage, but he says, actually, I'm not really talking about marriage. He says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. He says, look, marriage is not the be-all and end-all, of course. Jesus never married. In a way, marriage is a, like a picture of something even more amazing. And beautiful and profound. The relationship between Jesus and the church. And marriage is a very good analogy. Marriage is an institution. But if you have marriage uh, with no love, if you have just have the institution but with no love, it can be quite dry. Right? 
quite dead. If you just have love but without marriage, it can be very unstable. If you bring together the love that two people have for each other and the institution of marriage, then it is very powerful. And it's a little bit like that with the church. If you just have the institution of the church, it can be a bit dry and dead. If you just have the love and the fire of the Holy Spirit and the faith, uh, it can be a bit unstable. But bring together the love, the fire, the enthusiasm, and the institution of the church, and it is so strong and so powerful. Another reason marriage is a great analogy is because marriage is long-term. It's meant to be for life. And Jesus loves us. He gave himself up for us. If you'd been the only person in the world, Jesus would have died for you. He loves you and me unconditionally, wholeheartedly, continually for life. Folks, the church should be famous for this kind of love. A love that is radical, inclusive, generous, sacrificial, unconditional. With people from every different background and ethnicity and walk of life. Real diversity. The church is not a museum that displays these perfect people. Sometimes we can get that impression. That somehow you know, everyone here sorts it out. Folks, the church is more like a hospital that welcomes the broken. The hurt, the wounded and helps them to find healing. And this is the unconditional love that breaks down barriers, puts people back on their feet, restores, and it heals. So the church is always a work in progress, always. The church really is a community of the broken, for the broken, created by the one who was broken for us, for our healing. The Apostle Paul, when speaking to the the new pastors of the church in Acts as he was leaving them. He says this in chapter 20, verse 28. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. You see, the church belongs to God. We belong to God because we have been bought. We've been redeemed through the payment of the death of Jesus. The Bible says that all people have been created by God, for God, in love, and yet have ignored God and gone their own way. In doing so, we've all set ourselves up in opposition to God. I will rule myself is the human malady. This rebellion brings death because to turn from God is to turn from life itself. This is the judgment that all people find themselves under. But because God loves us so much, more than we could ever imagine, in Jesus, God did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He paid the penalty for our sin. Jesus received the death that we deserve on the cross in our place, so that we could receive his spirit, we could receive forgiveness, that we could live forever with him and with his people, the church, because we are the friends of God, the members of the family of God, so that we can come home to God, joined to Jesus and living in the love of God. This is the church. It's a community of the broken, for the broken, created by the one who was broken for us and for our healing. So why the church? Why the church? Because we're the friends of Jesus. God's family. We're home. The church is about Jesus and love for each other. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the church. Lord, we submit our hearts and our lives to you afresh today. Recognizing, Lord, that your vision for us is to be joined together in our Lord Jesus as brothers and sisters. Lord, help us to grab a hold afresh today of the meaning and the purpose of the church, the beginning of the new creation. 
Lord, help us to also appreciate afresh that the church is always a work in progress. Lord, that we've never got it all together. Help us, Lord, to remember always that we're a community of the broken, for the broken, created by the one who was broken for us and for our healing.